Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Dan Kilbride. I am chair of the history department at John Carroll University outside of Cleveland, Ohio. I'm also the host of New Books in American Studies, which means that every week or so uh, we find a book. Sometimes a book finds us. And that can be on any area of what is called this kitchen sink area of American studies. That can be history, as it usually is on this show. Uh, Also, literature, literary studies, cultural studies, public health, urbanization, science, you name it. Uh, Today, we are joined by Mark Cheatham, who is the Associate Professor of History at Cumberland University in Tennessee. And we're going to talk about his book, Andrew Jackson, Southerner. Uh, That title pretty much says it all. Uh, This book is published by Louisiana State University Press in 2013 and is part of their Outstanding Southern Biography series, which is currently edited by Andrew Burstein. Uh, Andrew Jackson is an an interesting uh, president to look at. Uh, most people today, I'm not sure how much they know about Andrew Jackson. Um, they may know that he's on the $20 bill, which is a bit ironic given his position on the second bank of the United States and banks in general. But Andrew Jackson is a president. When you think about him, line him up against Lincoln, Jefferson, Washington, John F. Kennedy, that Americans probably know a lot less than they think about. So Mark's new book is a really welcome and uh, accessible look at a president that Americans could probably uh, afford to know a lot more about. So Mark, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a native Tennessean, although uh, people from Tennessee are very clear about uh, you have to know where you're from in Tennessee. So Tennessee is divided into West, Middle, and East Tennessee. So I'm actually a native East Tennessean um, who found his way to Middle Tennessee to do my undergraduate studies here at Cumberland. And uh, then I did my master's at MTSU, Middle Tennessee State University, in Murfreesboro, which is just south of Nashville. And then I uh, went to uh, study for my doctorate at Mississippi State University with uh, Dr. John Marslach, who authored um, a very notable book on Jackson called The Petticoat Affair, which deals with a sex scandal um, mm-hmm. during Jackson's presidency. So I was at Mississippi State uh, for six years, uh, finished my PhD, and then taught for a couple of years there as a lecturer, and then made my way up to New Hampshire, which was uh, quite a change from Mississippi in a number of different ways. I'll bet it was. It was, uh, and not just the weather. (laughs) Um, So I I taught at Southern New Hampshire University uh, there in Manchester, New Hampshire, for four years. And then I had the opportunity to to come back home, so to speak, to Cumberland and teach my alma mater. So I've been at Cumberland since 2008. What is it like to teach your alma mater? Uh, (laughs) Not as bad as I thought it might be. when I first came back in 08, there were a number of my former professors who were still on the faculty here. And, you know, there's this trepidation. Will they still see me as a student? Will they remember all the goofy things I did as an undergraduate? Uh, <laughs> but thankfully, they they were very gracious and very kind and treated me like a colleague. And um, so it's been a good experience so far. Yeah, I wondered. I, I actually did a. I went to St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, and I recently. I, I have a daughter who is a senior in high school, and so we're doing college visits right now. And mm-hmm. I revisited my old uh, campus uh, about two weeks ago, and it was a very strange experience. <laughs> All right, let's talk about let's talk about the book. We're not here to talk about uh, my college visit. Um, Andrew Jackson, Southerner. Um, why why not Andrew Jackson, American, or Andrew Jackson, Westerner? 
I, when, when I was thinking about uh, writing uh, this book, um, my, my advisor uh, said that I needed to come up with something different. There are plenty of Jackson biographies out there. In fact, uh, since I conceived this idea, uh, John Meacham has published his American Lion biography, which won the Pulitzer. Uh, and, and if I had known that he was going to do that, I might not have even undertaken this project. <laughs> um, but in any case, I, I knew that I needed to take a different perspective on Jackson. And as I looked at Jackson, one of the things that became clear from some of the research I'd done uh, on other projects was that Jackson is, is more well, I shouldn't say more. Jackson is an American. He is a, a Westerner, but he is also a Southerner, and that is an understudied um, aspect of his of his life. And so mm -hmm. I sought to define, you know, what are the Southern characteristics that he embodied um, in his personal life, and then how did those um, characteristics affect his politics, uh, in particular as president? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I wasn't trying to confront you about that. I was just you know, thinking about, uh, and you allude to this in your book, uh, there's some recent uh, sort of survey work done at a very high level in this era of American history. And I'm thinking particularly of work by Daniel Walker Howe and Sean Wilentz, who do position Jackson very vigorously as an American. I'm thinking particularly of the, the chapter in Daniel Walker Howe's, again, Pulitzer prize-winning survey of the antebellum period, where he is extremely critical of Andrew Jackson, and I think we may talk about that uh, as we proceed, but the, the one area where Hal is unambiguously uh, pumped up on Jackson is, is the nullification movement. He says there's the this is the one part of Jackson's career where he really stepped up to the plate and did the right thing. And of course he did it as an American, as somebody who was absolutely dedicated to what was called at the time, the union and, uh, had no time for the kind of secession of sectionalism that nullification, uh, you know, epitomized. Mm. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting because I, I think that sometimes we try to, when we talk about identities, um, we try to, to place people in, you know, historically and even in our own times in boxes. So you, you, we, you, we identify someone as a Republican or a Democrat or as a conservative or a liberal or, you know, fill in the blank. And what, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to f flesh out Jackson in a way so that people understand where he came from and how where he came from and where he spent um, – his his life, the majority of his life in Middle Tennessee, how that affected the way that he viewed not just his personal life, but as I said, his politics. And on, in the case of nullification, I think nullification is a great example of how Jackson, who might have had a a sympathy toward uh, some of the the arguments that South Carolinians were making, you know, the mm -hmm. threat of the national government towards slavery and that sort of thing, that he might have had a natural inclination to support those, yet he transcended those because in that particular instance, he saw the threat to the Union. Um, but there, there are other times, like with Indian removal, when Jackson is, is I think, fairly firmly in, in the corner of states' rights supporters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, to me, it's, it, it adds a complexity to look at Jackson as a Southerner and to understand that this image we have of Southerners uh, during this period, we think of the John C. Calhouns and the Jefferson Davises and uh, so on, but you can also be a Southerner like Jackson, and that, to me, helps helps complicate things, but it also makes makes it more realistic to look back at that period and understand that not everyone fit that one definition of a Southerner that we mm -hmm. think of. Uh, oh, some of the scholarship that I alluded to, uh, the recent scholarship, um, and I guess we could add Andrew Burstein's book, The Passion of Andrew Jackson, to this list, focuses on Jackson's character. Uh, and some of this literature is extremely, uh, I don't know if this is the right word, but judgmental. Uh, you know, for example, Daniel Walker Howe's book, 
which is dedicated to John Quincy Adams, <laughs> is quite critical of Jackson as a, as a man, uh, as as a person, and not only to his policies, which House, as as a as a Whiggishly temperamental person, is opposed to, and you know, Sean Wilentz, uh by contrast, has come to Jackson's defense, uh, at, you know, as a person. Do you think that? What are the limits of that approach to looking at Jackson? Is it is it worthwhile to focus on issues of character and uh, can it can we is it even appropriate at this point in history to judge Andrew Jackson you know 150 years later? That's a great question. That's one um, that my students and I recently recently dealt with uh, in, in one of our classes. I think that any time you look at a historical figure, whether it's Jackson or um, Hitler or Washington or Lincoln or you know, fill in the blank, I think there I think there is a value in looking at them and looking at their character, and I do think there is a value in making judgments. Um, but at the same time, we also have to understand historical individuals in the context of their times. And we have to understand the limits that they had on their perspectives and their worldviews and how our understanding of those, some of those issues is very different today. And I don't think that that diminishes um, anything about the historical process. I think that you can do both. I think you can understand an individual in the context of his or her times, but you can also look at them and say, you know, now, knowing what we know now, certainly he or she should have done something different. Um, but that person obviously didn't have the benefit of that um, mm-hmm. necessarily. Yeah. Um, and, you know, right. we could argue about that as well. Um, but, you know, the, the Jackson is one of those figures that historians have very rarely been impartial about. Um, right. they, it seems that he, <laughs> like during his lifetime, you either loved him or you hated him, and historians seem to have continued that. And one of the things I tried to do in my book is to be fairly even-handed and to see Jackson for who he was, to understand him for who he was in the context of his times, but also to understand that his decisions had some pretty long-lasting implications for Mm -hmm. the United States and for the people living within its boundaries. That's right. Uh, You you just alluded to this, so I'll ask you to expand on it. You know, it's not only the case that Jackson... uh, pushes buttons among historians in our own time, but he was extraordinarily divisive in his own time. That's one reason, for example, why Daniel Walker Howe objects to the moniker The Age of Jackson, because he says Jackson divided as much as he united, and he was an enormously divisive and controversial figure in his own day. Why do you think so many people hated Andrew Jackson during his lifetime? Um, I think probably oftentimes he was easy to hate. Uh, (laughs) He he is just, his temperament, um, for a number of reasons, I think his temperament just lends itself to to being someone who either rubbed you the wrong way and offended you, or uh, he was someone whose, whose temperament uh, was 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 attractive to you, and that's the interesting thing about, or one of the interesting things about Jackson is that he does have those people who are extremely loyal to him for long periods of time, and they defend him, and they're uh, they're willing to you know go to battle for him, and then you have on the opposite side people who have no love for him. Um, so part of it, I think, comes down to temperament, and then I think part of it is also that he his political stands during his presidency in particular are he he very rarely waffles um he's <laughs> usually decisive and um when you take a decisive stand oftentimes um you know people on the other side of that uh issue um don't like you and i think jackson faces that and that, that that's not to say that he's always right i'm just saying that sure. when he when he makes a decision he he typically stands by the decision, and those types of politicians um, tend to bring uh, the greatest attacks, um, hmm. at least, well, I think even today. 
Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. Well, let's 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 talk about Jackson and and let's talk about what made him tick. Um, you know, you argue in your book that uh, Jackson's youth is decisive in mm-hmm. uh, in explaining who he was, and especially we need to understand Jackson's you know his upbringing in the uh, sort of Waxhaw region of the Carolinas, and as you said, in Middle Tennessee. How did those places and his experiences as a young man and a youth in those places shape the man that he became? Well, I, I definitely think that uh, historians have have done a just, uh, an injustice to Jackson by not looking more at his childhood. Um, I know here in, in Tennessee, most people just want to talk about um, Jackson as a as a frontiersman. He comes to Middle Tennessee, and there's where his character is shaped, and and so on. But when Jackson comes to to Nashville, he's 21 years old, and he his I, I won't say that his character is fully formed. I think you know most people evolve over their lifetime, but certainly some of the experiences that he had 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 already shaped some of some lifelong um, viewpoints that he had. So as he's growing up in the Waxhaws, Jackson is surrounded by violence, uh, which is one of the main themes of his life. You, you have uh, that, an area that had been uh, uh, seen a number of, of white native conflicts in the years before Jackson is born. And even though that mostly dies out um, after, after 1767, the year of his birth, you still have the memory of that. You still have, you know, neighbors and relatives and and other people talking about what it was like when uh, when we were attacked or or when so and so was murdered or when you know this happened. And so I think during his formative years, Jackson is is absorbing that and that affects his perspective on Native Americans. Another example uh, would be that when Jackson. Um, is when he he loses his family uh, by the time he's an early teenager. His father died around the time he was born. Mm-hmm. His uh, two older brothers and his mother died during the American Revolution. So he is uh, he's an orphan. He has extended family in the area, but he decides to leave. Um, and he, when he's around 15 or 16, he decides to leave um, the the Wax Halls and go to Charleston. He spends a few months there makes his way back to the Waxhaws for a few months and then leaves permanently. And when he leaves and he goes to North Carolina to study law, one of the, one of the things that he picks up there is, and he may have already had this, this idea, um, but he picks up this idea that kinship is extremely important to getting ahead in life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, family connections, he has family connections through his extended family, but kinship is reflective not just of your blood kin, but it's also of people you consider family. And Jackson, when he moves to North Carolina, he falls in with a number of different young men around his age, a little bit older, who have these kinship networks that are, are tying them to, to very prominent men in North Carolina politics. And Jackson, I think at that point, realizes if he's going to get ahead in life, he has to find a way to utilize kinship networks um, to his advantage. And in fact, one of, the, one of the ways that he makes it to Tennessee is that one of his, his colleagues there in North Carolina, a man by the name of John McNary, um, asked Jackson to be the prosecuting attorney in what was the Miro district at that point in Middle Tennessee. And uh, McNary is part of one of these extensive kinship networks. And so Jackson uses that to his advantage to make his way to Middle Tennessee and then certainly when he reaches Nashville and he marries into the Donaldson family, which was one of the co-founding families of, of Middle Tennessee, he mm-hmm. utilizes that kinship network um, to, to great advantage in a number of different ways, uh, through business contacts, through political contacts. Um, these men are giving him connections so that he can prosecute cases, and eventually those connections lead him to be appointed to uh, as Tennessee's first U.S. representative, and on and on and on. And Jackson uses kinship throughout his life um, in order to advance himself politically and also personally. Hmm. Um, 
I want to kind of get back to his youth in a second, but I want to ask you to amplify something that you just mentioned. And one of the things that readers of this book who are not intimately familiar with the period might find strange is the uh, the nature of legal training. Um, and you mentioned that Jackson, as a young man, uh, enjoyed uh, considerable responsibility as a, as a public official, as a prosecutor in Tennessee. What kind of legal training did Jackson have and where did he get it? Jackson studied, or uh, when I say study, um, the term they would have used would have been red law. And mm-hmm. so basically what that meant was that he, he, he went to, he actually read law under three different lawyers in North Carolina. And essentially what that meant was that you read legal books and you copied them. And you would also have the opportunity to, to accompany lawyers um, who were supervising you perhaps to observe them trying cases. Um, but essentially it's just a lot of rote memorization and reading. And uh, then you appeared, or at least in Jackson's case, he appeared before uh, three lawyers who were, um, you know, well-established in the community, and they um, tested him and decided that he was uh, equipped to to practice law. And it seems very, I know for law students today, it seems very haphazard (laughs) and sort of, (laughs) you know, maybe it would be a better, they would prefer that, but um, it it is a very informal way, at least at this point, of becoming a lawyer, but becoming a lawyer was another way of advancing in society. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, lawyers, I don't think lawyers have ever been universally loved, um, but it is a profession that gives you entree into a different circle socially and politically. Right. And Jackson uh, understood that. And um, even though his legal career doesn't, doesn't last really beyond the early 1800s, it is something that um, proved very valuable in getting him established. Um, that kind of makes me think of another question. That was uh, there are similarities in what you described right there about Jackson's legal background to uh, Abraham Lincoln and his mm-hmm. legal training, which is essentially the same in the way he read law and worked the circuits and things like that. Uh, what we know about Lincoln is he loved the law and he loved being a lawyer. Mm. Did Jackson love the law or did he see it more as a, a method of social and political advancement? I would say the latter. I I don't um, – I've never had the impression that Jackson loved being a lawyer. I, I think it was simply an avenue for him – to to ad, advance um, and whether he had the foresight to, uh, to see how far he, it would advance him, um, you know, it was impossible to know. But I, mm-hmm. he certainly saw it as a way to to move out of the Carolinas to somewhere new and to to have um, not necessarily a fresh start, but a a new place where he could establish connections that he wouldn't necessarily have had in the Carolinas. Right. One of the stories that people who know anything about Jackson probably know or have heard is the story of Jackson being assaulted by a British officer during the American Revolution. Mm. Um, And it's often argued that that episode leads to or sets the foundation for Jackson's lifelong Anglophobia, just hatred of England. Do you think that is that an important episode in his life? I think so. Um, I am not as convinced that it it creates uh, a lifelong hatred and use the, the term anglophobia, which I'll come back to in a second. But I think a lot of historians have, have talked about Jackson hating the British. And the reason he hates the British is because of, you know, being assaulted by this officer and, and and not just being assaulted, but he carries with him scars that mm-hmm. on his body until he dies. Um, and, and that, you know, he hates the British because they cost him his two older brothers and his mother. But Jackson hated different groups of people. Um, I don't think he necessarily has a has a special place uh, of hatred in his heart for the British. Um, but I certainly think that, that being involved in that violent encounter and witnessing the violence of the revolution in the Waxhaws area 
certainly affects him, and it doesn't it cert, it doesn't encourage any love for the British. Um, <laughs> and I think uh, throughout his life, he he does view the British with suspicion, which goes back to your comment about anglophobia. Even in his last days, um, as he's um, lying sick in his bed and, and, and about to die, he is concerned about the United States acquiring Texas. And there are a number of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is because he's afraid that the British will take control of Texas, and if they take control of Texas, then they're going to be a threat to the Union in a number of mm-hmm. different ways, including abolitionism and expansion and so on. So that I think that episode is certainly important, um, and I think you're right. It, it encourages his anglophobia, um, but again, I don't necessarily see it as a formative um, episode in causing him to hate the British in a special mm-hmm. way. So are you kind of arguing that Jackson saw Great Britain as sort of a, the primarily as a geopolitical threat to American expansion and American greatness and instead of sort of an existential hatred towards Britain and all things British? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay. I think that's absolutely right. Um, Jackson eventually, uh, you, 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 I think you use this phrase in your book in the early parts, you say he's sort of an angry young man as he moves to Middle Tennessee. But Jackson did settle down eventually. And one of the things he did when he settled down is he married uh, Rachel, the sort of love of his life. What are the most interesting things that you find about the Rachel-Andrew Jackson courtship? The courtship? <laughs> um the the whole episode uh, for for listeners who don't know Rachel Donaldson who is one of the the several children of the co-founder of Nashville Rachel Donaldson was actually married to a man by the name of Louis Robards when Jackson arrived in Nashville and the the consensus among his historians and certainly the Jackson family seems to be that Louis Robards was a very jealous man and Rachel was a very flirtatious young woman. And that's <laughs> never a good combination. Um, and so there had been some episodes prior to Jackson arriving um, and, and the family lore is that Robards had actually physically abused Rachel, certainly had been emotionally abusive. Hmm. So when Jackson arrives on the scene, he he um, is sort of this savior. I think there's this instant, or maybe not instantaneous, but there, very soon there's this chemistry between he and Rachel, and Louis Robards is furious about this. And um, whether it was because Jackson was paying too much attention to Rachel or vice versa, whether there was something more going on that he actually had reason to be jealous of, Louis tries to put a stop to it. And eventually when it's clear that um, Lewis is, is going to be the third wheel, he leaves <laughs> and goes to Kentucky. And um, that initiates a series of events in which Andrew and Rachel go down to Natchez, which was Spanish territory. And when they come back, they tell everyone that they're married. And then uh, word comes um, a couple of years later that Lewis Robards has just now divorced Rachel so Andrew and Rachel had been living as husband and wife, and in reality, she was a bigamist. Um, and so it's just a very, it's, it's like a soap opera uh, in a lot of different ways. <laughs> and so, you know, one of the, two, a couple of the interesting things about that is, number one, Jackson, as a lawyer, should and I think would have known what the process was for a husband to divorce his wife. At that point, it would have required an act of the legislature. And, mm-hmm. you know, you don't just go down the street, pay the lawyer your fees and divide up your, your goods. So Jackson should and I think did know that. And the other interesting thing is that if Jackson truly believed that he and Rachel had legally been married, um, he would not have remarried her or married her for the first time, depending on who you believe, in 1794. Uh, because I think even at that age, Jackson was very adamant about certain things. And I, I truly believe if he thought that he and Rachel were, were legally married, he would not have gone through that, that ceremony. 
Uh, but he did. And so that suggests to me that he understood that, you know, things had not quite gone the mm-hmm. way legally that, that they said that they had. But in any case, um, one of, if you look at Andrew and Rachel's relationship, whatever the, the beginnings and the origins of that, I, I think that they love each other. I think that's very clear. Um, when Rachel dies in 1828, Jackson grieves her and he grieves her for the rest of his life. And, you know, whatever else we can say about Jackson, I think he truly loved Rachel. She was the love of his life. And that, I don't Mm -hmm. think that's, that it's overstating it to say it that way. Do you think that Jackson, uh, you know, one of the reasons that, uh, he might've taken this a little easy, uh, in the early years of their marriage was that this is just the kind of thing that was kind of common on the frontier. I mean, as you said, you, uh, you just didn't simply walk down the street, you know, through the state Capitol, uh, you know, to see a lawyer, you actually had to get to the legislature to pass a law on your behalf. Right. And especially, you know, it was maybe one thing to do that if you were in New York or Philadelphia, but it's quite another to do that if you lived in middle Tennessee. Right. Uh, do you see the, that Jackson simply saw this as this is, you know, uh, nothing special considering where he was at in his life. Perhaps. And that's certainly arguments um, that historians have made that this area, which is not um, very well developed, it would have you know been considered the frontier at that time, that things are much more fluid there. And as long as Jackson and and Rachel believed that they would be accepted as husband and wife, you know, what was the big deal? And the fact that when they come back from Natchez and say that they're husband and wife, the fact that they're accepted in the family, there doesn't seem to be any um, discussion or dispute about whether or not they're actually man and wife, um, lends lends credence to the idea that this this situation is just simply much more fluid than we typically think of um, because of the geographic location and because of the distance from um, the places where you would you you would do those types of things like obtain divorces. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jackson uh, was not merely a successful lawyer; he was a successful businessman, a successful plantation owner. Mm-hmm. How did he achieve those uh, successes? Well, he wasn't always successful. Um, like you know, like anyone, he had his 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 good times and his bad times. Uh, Jackson uses his kinship connections to 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 benefit himself politically, but he also does that in terms of his business. So, for example, when he is um, living in Middle Tennessee in the 1790s, he's speculating in land, and that was something that the Donaldson family was doing, and so it seemed natural for him to do it as well. Um, and so he made money that way. He had various businesses that he set up uh, in the area to make to try to make money. Those usually did not go so well. He also raced horses, uh, which proved very profitable for him. That that was another love, a lifelong mm-hmm. love that he had, was owning and, and racing horses. Um, and so so all that to say that he has... He has these business connections and these small successes that allow him to build um, a, a plantation. And along the way, he's acquiring slaves, you know, one, two, three at a time, um, until he becomes quite successful at that. And so those slaves are producing crops that are that are turning a profit, which allow him to buy more slaves, to buy more land. And to me, this is just very typical. I think of what many um southern gentlemen um were doing at this time that they were slowly accruing particularly those who weren't inheriting things they were slowly accruing wealth and if they were successful eventually they reached a point where they were extremely wealthy and jackson mm-hmm. was extremely wealthy and that is one of the the ironies of 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 his life i think that he becomes a symbol of the common man um, during his presidential campaign of 28 in particular, yet he's not a common man. Um, <laughs> not at someone, all. He's someone who's extremely wealthy. He would have been part of the elite class of Southern society, yet he is presented, and I think he sees himself 
in a lot of ways as a commoner, as a common man who can identify with the people. And that may, he may have just been ahead of his time because, you know, that's what you hear today from politicians is that they understand, you know, the problems that the average American faces and so on. And so maybe Jackson was just ahead of his time in that way. Hmm. What do we know about Jackson uh, as a slaveholder, as a slave, uh, as a slave manager and as a plantation manager? Uh, one of the things to remember about Jackson is, is that he was often away from home, um, particularly once the War of 1812 began. He was traveling mm-hmm. um, for, for the military, with the army, and certainly, of course, when he uh, becomes president, he's away from the Hermitage for, for most of, the, of those eight years. So one of the things to keep in mind is that for a number of years, he is an absentee plantation owner. He's an absentee mm-hmm. slave owner. And so he is, but he's very engaged because he's sending letters back to Rachel. He's sending letters to male relatives and neighbors, you know, do this, make sure that the slaves are doing what they're supposed to do and so on. Make sure the overseer is not mistreating them. Um, As far as his treatment and management of the slaves, again, I think Jackson in in a lot of ways is very typical. Uh, he, He has these letters uh, in which he writes again to, to Rachel or someone else, you know, how is, you know, such and such slave, are they better, uh, or I've, I'm very sorry to hear that so-and-so, you know, one of the female slaves lost her child in childbirth or lost a child to sickness. So he has these expressions of, of sympathy uh, and compassion, but at the same time, he also orders um, slaves beaten for um, running away, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's mm-hmm. the very famous advertisement, that right. in 1904, where he promises um, extra money if if up to 300 if up to 300 lashes are given to a runaway slave, yeah, which is not not compassion at all. Um, there's another episode with a female slave when he's the territorial governor of Florida. Um, Rachel writes him and and tells him that one of their slaves by the name of Betty is washing clothes for the neighbors, and Rachel is very upset about this, and she wants Jackson to do something about it. And so Jackson writes to to some men in the household, including one of his nephews, and tells them, um, you know, basically straighten Betty out. And if she doesn't, you know, acquiesce to that, then you need to whip her publicly so that she learns her lesson because she has been known to do this in the past. Mm. So you have, you know, you have again, I think a very typical reaction um, from Jackson that you would see across the elite Southern class is that you have these moments of compassion that you could point to and say, wow, you know, Jackson, Jackson really treated his slaves like family, which is typically what the general public I I think thinks. But then you have these other episodes that demonstrate that that's not true, that this is actually a business and these people are seen as property and they're seen as property to control. And if they, if they don't do what their owner wants them to do, then they have to suffer the consequences, whether it's mm-hmm. a beating, whether it's you know some other form of punishment. Um, so again, I think he's he's just typical in that way. Uh, just really quick, um, what was the problem with Betty washing clothes for the neighbors? Was it was she making money on the side? Was she sloughing off her duties for the Jackson household? What was the problem with that? That's not that's not clear. Um, hmm. It could be that. Um, that Rachel was just tired of Betty being independent because, again, Jackson references this, that that this is not – that the washing clothes for the neighbors hasn't been a consistent problem, but Betty, her impudence is the word he used, Mm -hmm. has been an issue. And so it may just be that Rachel, in Jackson's absence, was tired of trying to control this slave woman, and she wanted Jackson to do something about it. It's sort of – the episode has always struck me – um, sort of like you know, parents with a child, uh, and the child will will act up when the father's not around, and so the mother you know is tired of trying to take care of this child, and so she just passes the buck on to onto the father. You need to do something about so and so. Right. So that's always how it struck me. Uh, one theme that runs through your book and runs through everything written about Andrew Jackson is uh, his penchant for violence. Mm. And as you mentioned early in the book, uh, 
his violence threatened to derail his career in Nashville as he was rising quickly through the political uh, structure in Nashville. Uh, why was Andrew Jackson so violent? I think part of it is temperament. I think, um, you, you know, well, I say temperament, you know, is it nature or is it nurture? Um, mm -hmm. I, I think it's a combination with him. I think uh, temperamentally, psychologically, he seems to have a predisposition. But it was, whether or not he had that predisposition, his environment growing up, you know, the, hearing the stories about conflict, experiencing the Revolutionary War, um, even when he moves to Middle Tennessee, Middle Tennessee and the settlements uh, around Nashville were under constant attack by Native Americans. And so violence is, is, a, uh, is a thread that runs throughout his early years. Um, and so the reason I say I think he's predisposed to that is because just because you're exposed to violence doesn't make you violent, but he seems to, to, to be violent, and he is violent mm -hmm. um, at, various, at various times. Um, I think it's also part of the way that Jackson, as someone who sees himself and is viewed as, as an elite Southerner, I think it, it is a way for him to maintain his status. Um, so, for example, uh, he fights a couple of duels, one uh, in East Tennessee as he's on his way to Nashville uh, the first time, and then uh, when he's living in Nashville in 1806, he actually kills a man by the name of Charles mm -hmm. Dickinson in a duel. And w one of the things that I think many Americans today don't understand about duels, it's certainly true with my students, is they think that duels were about killing the other person. Right. And that certainly could be a consequence. <laughs> um, but really, what these duels were, were they were almost acts of theater to preserve your reputation. And what I see with Jackson is that when he's engaging in duels or when he's engaging in, in brawls or, or street fights uh, with the Benton brothers or with Samuel Dorsey Jackson um, or with John Sevier even, you have, you have a man who is trying to maintain his place in Southern society. And he's trying to prove that he belongs to that society. Um, so part of it, I think, is his background and his temperament, but part of it is also the expectations of Southern society that when your reputation was challenged, you had to react to that. And Jackson chose to react to that in, in violent ways. Having said that, I also think as Jackson gets older, he uses this reputation that he's accrued over the years as this you know, very violent, you know, short-tempered man. He uses mm -hmm. that to his advantage. Um, you know, there are times when he um, uh, manipulates, I guess is the, the best word to use, he manipulates people into doing what he wants because he knows that they know about his reputation and he knows that he can intimidate them. One of my students said, so you're saying he was a bully? And I said, well, manipulative, yeah, maybe he was a bully. <laughs> but really that, that is what he's doing is he's using his reputation to to get the effect that he wants. And so mm -hmm. as he gets older, I think this, you know, the violent tendencies, he sort of mellows a bit, um, but he still knows he has that reputation and he uses right. that politically, you know, not in duels or in street brawls, but he uses it in political battles. Yeah. Uh, Sean Wallens tells a funny story about during the bank war, uh, Jackson was visited by a number of uh, Northern businessmen and uh, I forget who else is in the room. It might have been Amos Kendall or somebody. And he just says, you know, just just watch this. And so the guys come in and they, you know, just plead with him to, you know, not veto the bank and to allow it to continue. And he simply flies into a rage, just for a, <laughs> right. just goes apoplectic for you know twenty minutes or so. And they ter flee terrified from the from the office. And then he turns to the guy in the office and says, "Oh, I think I made my point." And that's right. Just, you know, you know, it, it was it was all uh, an act. You know, he he, right. just, he was in control the entire time, but he used that reputation to you know definitely these guys definitely didn't think it was out of character, but it scared the hell out of them. That's right. Uh, That's right. <laughs> anyway, this is a good segue to talk about Jackson, the politician. Uh, 
uh, clearly uh, another area where Jackson was enormously successful. When did Jackson first seriously think about aspiring to the presidency? I honestly think it was after he was approached um, by his friends in Tennessee uh, in 1822. There was a man running for the U.S. Senate, one of the U.S. Senate seats, and Jackson's friends did not want this guy there. And so they needed a big name to take him down, and um, Jackson was the big name. And so he agrees to go along with this. By this point, he's, he has said repeatedly, I just want to retire. You know, he, he had been to Florida. He had fought in the War of 1812. He'd done all that. He wants to retire, and he says, I want to be a farmer. Um, so his friends convince him to run for the seat, and then the next thing you know, later that year, they're introducing his, his name into the presidential race for 1824. And what I found in Jackson's correspondence is that throughout that 1824 campaign, even during the, the disputed House election that followed it, Jackson is talking about, I just, I'm doing this because this is what the people want, uh, but, you know, they need the champion, but I really just want to retire and be a farmer. And I, I don't think he really, truly wants the presidency in his, in his inner core until later in 1825, after the 24 elections over, he comes back to Tennessee. He's greeted by these crowds um, uh, who love him. I'm sure he's he's getting debriefed by by friends and relatives in Nashville about mm-hmm. uh, how how uh, his the election has impressed them and how they they feel like he was you know they were stolen from him. And I think at that point is when Jackson makes the decision. Yes, I want to be president. Um, is is in the late summer fall of 1825. Now, are you suggesting that he wasn't uh, sort of apoplectic at what you alluded to, the so-called corrupt bargain uh, between Clay and Adams until he returned home to Tennessee and some friends kind of convinced him that this was you know a, a reachable goal that he could do this, or, or was Jackson always convinced that? Clay and Adams had basically screwed him out of the presidency. Oh no, he 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 definitely understands that that's what or believes that that that's what's happened. Um, uh, for even between the the November election returns coming into Washington and the the House election early February of eighteen twenty five, there are rumors floating around Washington that there's this. You know, this, there's this conspiracy, there's this bargain that's been struck between the two men, and, and Jackson's aware of this, as is everyone. You know, Washington's not a good place to keep secrets. And mm-hmm. so you have this, I think he's very much aware of that, and certainly when it, when it turns out that that, um, that appears to be true, Adams wins the House election, um, and then a few days later appoints Clay as the Secretary of State, you know, Jackson explodes. He compares Clay to uh, to Judas, calls him the Judas of the West, and you know all those sorts of things. So no, I'm not saying that he's not angry about that. I don't not that he doesn't believe that that the election was stolen from him, but mm-hmm. I don't think he truly wants the presidency until yeah. after he comes back to Tennessee. And at that okay. point, you see a change in his correspondence to where it's it's clear to me at least that. He wants to rectify that decision, and he's going to do mm-hmm. whatever it takes to make that happen in 1828. Do you think he was surprised at how well he did in 1824? Did he expect to come in, come out first, you know, not with a majority, but with a plurality? Hmm, uh, that's a good question. I, uh, hmm. I think maybe every politician um, is is optimistic. Uh, <laughs> he certainly, he certainly you have to be. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I think he certainly was getting enough information from from his friends and the people who were coordinating his campaign to understand that he was doing fairly well, particularly after mm-hmm. William Crawford um, right, right. suffered the stroke in, in late 1823. Crawford, even though Clay was from the neighboring state of Kentucky, Crawford was really, I think, Jackson's main competition in a number in a number of ways. And so when Crawford drops out. 
or not, he doesn't drop out, but when he has the stroke and it, it right. appears that he's not, his campaign really isn't going to go very far. I think Jackson and his supporters see, you know, that there's a realistic chance that he could win, win the presidency. Mm-hmm. Okay. One of the episodes that may perplex people who are not um, experts in the field of Jacksonian history is the so-called, well, it's John Marzalek's uh, book, the petticoat affair or the, you know, the Peggy Eaton episode. Um, why did Jackson make defending uh, Peggy Eaton, uh, you know, a, a, a test of loyalty to himself? Why, why did he make this out to be a, a much more serious affair than it, you know, would appear to be on its own merits. There are a number of reasons. Uh, you know, we could do a whole hour-long podcast about about yep. just that episode. Um, I think part of it is is the psychological uh, trauma of having Rachel die right after uh, the uh, November 1828 election. Um, Rachel had been attacked um, by by the Adams men uh, throughout the campaign. Uh, her their marriage was brought up. Uh, Jackson and his supporters have to come up with affidavits attesting to, you know, her character, her purity, and and all kinds of things. And so when she dies, he blames the opposition for her death, even though she was 61. She had a, a history of heart trouble. She was overweight. So you know we can look at it logically mm-hmm. and say, you know, it's the stresses of the campaign. You know. Or maybe just old old age caused it, but for right. Jackson it was it was the attacks. So that is his mindset when he goes to Washington, and with John and Margaret Eaton, the similarities between their marriage and, and Andrew and Rachel's marriage is are, are striking in the sense that um, Margaret's character was being attacked by the women of Washington. Right. She was accused of having an affair with John Eaton. You know all these all these similarities are there. And so, you know, this is, this is, I guess, psychohistory in some ways. But I, I think <laughs> uh, most historians feel comfortable saying that Jackson projects onto them some of the, the things that he felt about he and Rachel because mm-hmm. of, of her recent death. So that's part of the equation. Um, the other, well, one of the other parts of the equation is that Jackson can be extremely loyal. John Eaton had been someone who had served yes. with him during the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. He was the de facto campaign manager in 1824 and in 1828. I don't think at that point there, there was anyone that any man that Jackson was closer to than John Eaton. And so for, for the women of Washington to attack Margaret and, and, you know, by proxy to attack John for cabinet officers to refuse to associate with John and Margaret because uh, you know, the new Secretary of War had married a woman that he was supposedly having an affair with. I mean, it just it eats at Jackson, and he he spends basically the first two and a half years of his presidency. He does other things, but he spends an enormous amount of time defending this marriage and defending their reputation and calling cabinet meetings to you know look <laughs> at the evidence and deem it you know unworthy of of being submitted for you know as as true. And it's it's really remarkable um, when you look at that episode and imagine a president spending so much time micromanaging the <laughs> personal visits and the personal opinions of one of his cabinet members and, and his wife. But uh, again, I think it's the psychological state that he's in, and it's also this, this, this loyalty that he feels toward John Eaton. And of course, mm-hmm. the irony is that by the end of the 1830s, John Eaton has essentially abandoned Jackson, uh, has turned his back on him and has joined the Whig party. Uh, It's really, and and that happens with some other people during his presidency as well. Um, So being, you know, having Jackson be loyal to you and you being loyal to Jackson, uh, usually there's this, this lifelong bond, but it could also turn very bad. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Jackson's been criticized for is uh, uh, his insistence on loyalty that his, uh, Jackson was somebody who could be, as you said, fiercely loyal to uh, his friends and their relatives, but that loyalty came at the cost of deference to mm-hmm. to Jackson. That you know, he was he was not somebody who could accept uh, uh, 
the idea that you know we have to agree to disagree about something that Jackson mm-hmm. took uh, dissent personally. Uh, is there a basis for that, or do you think do you think that's misplaced that criticism? Uh, no, I, I, I think it's it's valid. Um, that, that is that is how he acts with with people, uh, particularly with men, um, not just men, but particularly with men around him. And part of that, part of that may be um, the fact that he had lost his immediate family at such a young age that um, his kinship network, you know, the family he marries into, and then these other younger men around him that they sort of serve as a substitute family. And so, you know, there's this loyalty there that he expects and, and that he wants to give. But also part of it is, is Southern society and the expectations for Southern males, elite Southern males. Mm-hmm. You know, the expectation was in that culture that if you were an older patriarchal figure, that you gave certain advantages to the young men around you. You might provide them with education. You might provide them with connections uh, social networking connections or political networking connections or whatever. And so in return for for you giving them these these benefits or advantages, you expected them to be loyal and you expected them to, you know, to put it bluntly, to do your bidding. And mm-hmm. when you when you push back against that as one of those younger men, you know, that caused, a, a, it could cause a rupture in the relationship. And one of the ironies about Jackson uh, in that instance, is that one of his nephews, a man by the name of Andrew Jackson Donaldson, um, was at West Point in the late 18-teens. And there are these letters that Jackson writes to him telling him, avoid women of questionable character. Mm-hmm. You need to be very careful about associating with, with, with women who lack virtue. And so he, he teaches Donaldson these things and, 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 and sort of uh, encourages that thinking. Well, then, when Donaldson and his wife Emily come to uh, to Washington to be in the in the president's mansion with Jackson, um, Andrew and Emily Donaldson are two of the leading critics of John and Margaret Eaton. Mm. And what what becomes very clear in the exchanges of letters that Jackson and Donaldson have. And, and this is very odd because they're living under the same roof, yet they're writing yeah. these very terse letters to each other, sometimes <laughs> multiple times a day because they're not speaking. Um, what becomes very clear from those letters is that Donaldson believes he is simply doing what Jackson wanted him to do. Jackson had said, you know, as he was growing up, avoid women of questionable character. Well, Margaret was a woman of questionable character. So Donaldson's doing that. And Jackson is saying, no, 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 that she's not a woman of questionable character. You need to do what I say. <laughs> And then poor Donaldson, his wife Emily, you know, he has the pressure from her as well because she wants nothing to do with Margaret, and um, she's she's even more defiant with her uncle Jackson than than Andrew Donaldson is. And again, it's one of those episodes that could could be a soap opera. I mean, it's, it really is just a remarkable <laughs> episode of presidential politics. Yeah, hey, to what extent did Southerners see Andrew Jackson as? their president as one of them? Well, it depends. It depends on the issue. Um, certainly if you're a South Carolinian or if mm. you're someone who believed uh, very strongly in states' rights, um, there were times when Jackson was not your president. You know, the nullification crisis that we talked about mm-hmm. earlier being a good example of that. Um, but there were other times when he was your president. So with the Indian removal, um, when Jackson uh, sort of sides with the states' rights people in Georgia and uh, who wanted to get rid of the Cherokee, and Jackson you know, allows that and encourages that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, later in his second term, uh, their abolitionist groups were sending pamphlets into the South trying to, to encourage you know, the emancipation of slaves. And Jackson um, allows his postmaster general to confiscate those pamphlets uh, and to to basically shut down the mail system because of the danger that would come, he believes, from these types of viewpoints making their way to southern slaves because it would stir up rebellion and, and, you know, who knows what. And so if you're a southerner looking at Jackson at that point, you know, 
or certainly if you're a Southern slave owner, you look at him and you think, yeah, this is our champion. This is a man who understands what it's like to be a Southern slave owner, Mm -hmm. someone who's sympathetic and empathetic to our our viewpoint. So it really just depends on on what the issue is, and it depends on, on, you know, almost the month or the year that we're talking (laughs) about with Jackson because he, he is a complex man. Even in his Southern identity, he doesn't fit the mold of, of what, I think we expect, and certainly not what his contemporaries expected a Southerner to act like. Mm-hmm. How did Jackson, in the final years and after, even after he was president, try to shape his legacy? And and what did Jackson think should be his legacy as uh, president? Mm-hmm. I well, he he tries to shape his legacy. Um, by in some in some cases continuing to fight the battles uh, of previous <laughs> years, either of his presidency, or there's one episode um, uh, during the War of 1812, at, or actually after the Battle of New Orleans, before the treaty had been ratified by the Senate, um, Jackson had imposed martial law in New mm-hmm. Orleans, and he had thrown a federal judge in prison, and so <laughs> you know the judge had had fined him, and so. Jackson had had paid the fine, but he resented it. And and in the late 1830s, early 1840s, there's a movement among pro-Jackson politicians in Congress to uh, basically repay him with interest for that fine that he had paid. And so, you know, in that sense, he's he's going way back to fight battles. Um, he he talks about um, the economy and and the banking system, which his successor, Martin Van Buren, had to address, and that had been mm-hmm. one of the, the major episodes of his of Jackson's presidency. Uh, he also spends quite a bit of time in his final years uh, looking westward, looking in particular at Texas, right. and wanting Texas, as I mentioned earlier, wanting Texas for, uh, for a particular reason to keep the British out, uh, certainly, but also... Um, he sees this as sort of the natural progression of Southern society, you know, moving into into mm-hmm. Texas. And one of the things, this is one of the new things that I mentioned in the book that I don't think anyone else has mentioned. Jackson actually has land in Texas, and right. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. a vested, there's a vested right. economic and financial interest that he has as well in seeing Texas become part of the United States and seeing that area become stabilized because right. that land, you know, potentially could turn into very profitable land either, you know, with a plantation on it or more than likely at that point in his life if he could sell it. Um, yeah. and so yeah, I think he sees I think he sees his legacy um as as being, you know, this defender of the common man as being someone who championed the union. Um and and tried his best to keep um, things like the bank and and those horrible Whigs who were you know <laughs> trying to make the government more powerful, um, trying to stave off that centralization of government and right. the the overexpansion of governmental power. And again, another irony there are so many with him is that Jackson transforms the presidency and he makes that yeah. office so much more powerful than any previous president. Um, yet at the same time, he is someone who is arguing against the centralization of power in the federal government. Right. And it's ironic, and Sean Lentz points this out, that you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln, at the early years of the Civil War, uh, you know, as, as previously as a Whig, had, you know, had no uh, respect for Andrew Jackson, but comes to respect Jackson's presidential authority and his aggressive use of presidential authority finds it very useful during the civil war. Mm-hmm. I also find it interesting that, you know, as you said about Jackson's landowning in Texas, that he was, uh, he was a savvy enough politician to know that the issue of Texas's statehood was a real political hot potato mm-hmm. and it just wasn't worth pushing, especially if it would damage the prospects of his, you know, protege, uh, Martin Van Buren. Right. So Jackson was willing to put that off, even though he had, a, as you said, a vested interest in Texas statehood. Right. And he well, waited until another protege had the opportunity, James K. Polk, until mm-hmm. that protege had the opportunity when circumstances were different. And then Jackson began to push for it again. Yeah. Right, and Polk was happy to reciprocate, I think, oh, yes, for absolutely. sure. 
Well, Mark, uh, we've taken up over an hour of your time, so I think we're going to let you go. Uh, before we do that, though, can you tell us uh, what is uh, next on the plate for you? I'm actually working on a couple of uh, book projects right now. Uh, one of the books is looking at the origins of the Jacksonian Democrats, so um, politically and ideologically and in terms of structure. How did the Jacksonian Democrats form? What were their issues? And so it's a a, a broader perspective of that Jacksonian period. You know, I know Dan Walker Howe doesn't like that term, but um, <laughs> so and so that's one book project. And then another book project um, that'll come after that is looking at the presidential election of 1840 and using that as a lens into the political culture of the 1830s. So taking some of the work that's been done on the early republic mm-hmm. uh, in the 1790s, looking at the development of the first party system there, trying to duplicate on some scale that work in the 1830s. All right. Well, two books we'll be talking about in a couple of years. Um, <laughs> <I hope> so. <laughs> so, so Mark Cheatham, thanks very much for joining us at New Books in American Studies. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Once again, this is Dan Kilbride, uh, the host of New Books in American Studies. We've been talking with Mark Cheatham about his new book, Andrew Jackson, Southerner, published by the LSU Press in its Southern Biography series. You will see a link to this book uh, at the interview site, and it will take you directly to Amazon.com. And I know Mark is probably sitting around counting his royalty money as we speak, but he can always use more. So uh, when you listen to this interview, please buy the book if you're interested. Uh, Once again, this is Dan Kilbride signing off for New Books in American Studies. So long, everybody.